2: Spicy blend of personal stories, in depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting.
0: You've probably heard it. The brain is the most powerful sex organ. And orgasms can make it seem as though the rest of the world falls away. It's just you, maybe your partner, and your glorious big O. But do parts of the brain actually turn off when you experience orgasm? And why do orgasms seem to work better than Advil for some people for pain? And what about vibrators? Can you use them every day? Is that okay? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host August McLaughlin, and we are going to explore these questions and more today with a fabulous guest whose work I have admired for some time, and a fun Q&A with Dr. Megan. First, a big shout out to today's sponsor, the Pleasure Test, a company that has been championing sex positivity for decades. Visit their store in Los Angeles, New York, or Chicago, and enjoy their free weekly workshops. Or visit thepleasurechest.com to shop your heart out. And remember to sign up for occasional girl boner extras at augustmclaughlin.com. So if you've been following Girl Boner for a while, you know that I participated in some orgasm MRI research at Rutgers University, and today I'm so pleased to welcome one of the masterminds behind that study, Dr. Nan Wise, a sex therapist, cognitive neuroscientist, and certified relationship specialist, to talk about her team's latest findings, which were recently published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Thank you so much for joining me, Nan.
2: My pleasure. So nice
0: to connect again with you, August. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background first. Could you share what you learned about sex and sexuality when you were growing up?
2: Well, that's a great question because I was fortunate enough, August, to grow up in a very sex-positive family and also to enjoy the fruits of the time period that I was growing up And which was the late 60s, early 70s, which was a time when people were very much about, well, not necessarily free love, but sexual enlightenment and all of that. So I was always very comfortable with sexuality and always willing to talk about that with my psychotherapy clients. And so it was just part of the big picture for me. How are you? How's your life? How's your relationships? How's your sex life? <laughs> so I was always very sex positive. And as I went on in my work, I started to realize that a lot of people were very uncomfortable with their sexuality and also were not getting what they needed from their doctors, their therapists, you know, the kind of comfort and conversation. So I was doing that for quite some time and decided I really wanted to know more about the sexual brain. Actually, about the brain period. I was always very interested in in the brain. So when my kids grew up and they left, I went back to graduate school. And I did um, a PhD in cognitive neuroscience at the age of 50. I started up basically being encouraged by Dr. Beverly Whipple, who probably is one of the world's preeminent sex scientists who actually named the G-spot and ended up doing some research at Rutgers. And before I knew it, I was back in grad school.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: my work has really been about trying to fill in some of the astonishing gaps in our scientific knowledge about sexuality, in particular sexuality in the brain, and even more particularly female sexuality.
0: Yeah, yeah, I respect that so much. And your journey is very inspiring. So this latest study is really, really interesting. And it's been getting some wonderful news coverage. I think it's so important. Would you just share, what was the initial aim of this particular study?
2: Well, the initial aim of this study was to do a very well-controlled study of what happens in the brain as a woman's genitals are stimulated. Imagining genital stimulation was also part of it. And then as the genital physical stimulation continued to orgasm, what was going on in the various brain regions? And this kind of research hasn't really been done for a number of reasons. One is, it appears that the sex researchers are a bit more comfortable staying with the idea of arousal rather than getting into the messy business of orgasm. So we know more about arousal than we had known about orgasm. And um, secondly, there's a lot of challenges to doing this stuff in terms of the methods. And you probably remember when you were our participant, how important it was for you to keep your head still. Yeah, so that was a that was a getting a way of being able to stabilize um, our participants' heads without uh, being uncomfortable was a big thing. And the other thing, the major thing that I really dealt with was how to be able to kind of compare between people because, as you realize, everybody's sort of time frame is different. How long it takes for them to stimulate. Um, how long the orgasm lasts, how long it takes them to return to baseline. So I had kind of a challenge to sort out how to be able to go between people to be able to get some data that made sense, which I figured out. And the other big thing, which is extremely boring, I think for most people, is the statistical noise in the data, which has been a big critique of fMRI data. So I did really, really extensive statistical controls to make sure that what we were seeing was truly what was happening in the brain and not just the noise in the data.
0: Mm. Yeah. And when you said noise, of course, I was hearing the MRI machine because it's very loud.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's just not the sexiest place in the universe.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting. I actually still have my mask. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Did you use the same masks for this? The, it basically holds a person's head very still and you can still breathe and everything. Is, is that still th- that molded mask part of this study as well?
2: Yes, we sort of perfected it across a number of um, versions of it. And yes, we that the big thing, all of the previous work that my lab did when Barry published the original study on Um, orgasm in 2004. He was the first person who ever studied orgasm in the brain. Um, A lot of the critique was it's head movement, um, it's statistical noise, because fMRI data could have a lot of what we call statistical noise. So what I did was I did a very systematic way of, of comparing between people, also comparing between orgasm stimulated by your own masturbation versus someone uh, manipulating your genitals. So we looked at those two different conditions of orgasm. Um, just to be careful, because the other, the only other lunatic lab in the whole world that studies this, they use a different kind of brain imaging um, technique called PET scanning, and they also use partner stimulation. So it was a way of controlling to try and make sense of some of the discrepancies between what they were finding. They found that brain regions had to get quieter before orgasm, and I did not find that at all. So what we did was we controlled for a lot of the, the, the potential uh, differences. And so our data is very, very convincing because it was really, really statistically and experimentally controlled.
0: Interesting. So these other studies you were talking about at this other lab, is that why people thought that the brain sh- kind of shut down? Because a lot of the headlines about the research has been saying, you know, so many people have believed that the woman's brain has to kind of quiet down to, to orgasm or that the orgasm shuts down parts of the brain. Is that, that because of that research or where did that belief come from?
2: Exactly. That research came from the lab in Holland. And they published findings that said that, particularly in women, prior to orgasm, the frontal regions went below baseline. And so, of course, the media tends to kind of pick up on it. And they say, well, you know, your frontal regions, your, your brain has to go quiet in some ways in order to have an orgasm. And the story is really way more complicated than that. Yeah. The, the thing to really note is that the method that I use, which is fMRI, is a better method for studying this kind of stuff because it gives you really a good picture of what's happening over time. So you can study things. You can take out little uh, snippets of what's going on over the period of stimulation and orgasm. You can't do that with the other method pet. Pet's more like taking a snapshot.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. The
2: better method for this. Pet's a great method for other things, but not for this.
0: Okay. And see, when I was reading some of those, those articles kind of about debunking that sort of myth, I was thinking, to me, orgasm seems like a very centering, you know, when it's actually happening, it feels mindful to me, like you're I think more present, but to like quiet the brain down first to me, seemed kind of like, I don't know that I, I can't imagine myself doing that, (laughs) like quieting my brain all the way down. Um, So did you have a, a hypothesis? What were you expecting to learn?
2: Well, I was expecting to see that there would be likely a bunch of different brain regions involved in something that is such a big event. I mean, orgasms, you know, literally, they just feel very big. And so based on our previous work in the lab, where we saw quite a few of the various regions in the brain that are involved in, for example, sensation, movement, reward, like good feelings and all of that. So, I wasn't surprised by my findings, but what was very interesting also about what we found is some empirical support for some of the things that we've noticed about orgasm. For example, Barry Commissaric um, and Beverly Whipple years ago published a study that said that orgasms block pain. So, you mentioned that, I think, even in your when you were queuing up our conversation. You know, it's, orgasms have been known to be pain-relieving. And in this current study, we saw areas that are involved in the brain's own pain-relieving system
0: online and very active at mm. orgasms. So that makes sense. Oh, interesting. That's really fascinating. And you mentioned the differences between self-stimulated or partner-stimulated, what were some of the contrasting ideas that came from that?
2: Well, we had wondered if maybe the Dutch people found that the brains kind of deactivate before orgasm because they were using partner stimulation. So it was really kind of we were wondering were we going to see differences at orgasm based on how the orgasm is, you know, brought about what but the truth of the matter is we didn't see any differences between self-induced orgasm and partner-induced orgasm at the time of orgasm there are differences leading up to orgasm that probably have a lot to do about whether you're controlling your own stimulation or not like you know movement centers yeah the intensity was was much more so in the beginning with self-stimulation and because it makes sense because you you know can you can drive your car very efficiently. You can drive your own car. But at the time of orgasm, the orgasms appear to be pretty much the same. And, and I would guess that makes sense, although science does not always follow what makes sense, like mm-hmm. orgasms or orgasms, right? whether they're elicited by you or the person who you're with. The nature of orgasm and the experience of orgasm seems to be fairly comparable.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And how did the partner stimulate the clitoris? Because as I recall, the MRI machine is very cozy and small.
2: August, it was with great difficulty. <laughs> Cause you know, having been in the scanner, the scan your body's in the scanner up until about your mid thigh. So your mid from your mid thigh all the way in, you're in that tube. If anybody hasn't had it, a, an f an mri generally speaking depending on what they're scanning your body is in the tube so one of the challenges and one of the reasons why it wasn't as easy for people to orgasm with the partner stimulation is that the partner had to kind of reach in and stimulate the um the participants' genitals, we had it, we had we controlled for it by using clitoral stimulation for all of the conditions just to keep things as consistent as possible. And you can't the the person in the um, in the scanner could not communicate with the person stimulating their genitals. I mean mm-hmm. there's no way of being able to talk to communicate. It it was really challenging and, and it was much to many of my participants Um, and their partner's credit, that they were able to do that. So it was challenging, which is why I didn't end up with the same, you know, my hope was to have every participant have both kinds of orgasm during the scanner session, one one versus the other. That didn't happen.
0: Hmm. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It was
2: challenging.
0: I bet. So these were all couples. I know some were married, some were not, but were they all they had history together? Nope. Some oh, wow. people
2: didn't. I mean not have real history. Some of the people were relatively uh, new in terms of a kind of uh relationship, so there wasn't necessarily a long term or even a very, you know, meaningful relationship. We had a couple of people who were great sports and um Volunteered to have people from what was what was the OM community when people were and um, doing sort of the OM practice. I don't know if you know anything about
0: that. Yeah, the orgasm meditation yeah. where you have a yes. partner. So we had a couple yeah,
2: volunteers okay. from that community who helped us out, which I'm grateful for. Most of the people had some sort of ongoing sexual relationship, not necessarily a real serious relationship. And I wouldn't expect that orgasm would be all that much different in a longer term versus a shorter term relationship because, again, a lot of these physiological processes are, and I won't say exactly the same, but, you know, when, if you can get to the point of having an orgasm, it may not be the biggest orgasm that you have ever had, but it's going to be very orgasm-like is one made yeah. to
0: I hear you. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I'm really impressed that people who perhaps hadn't been together that long, like that the partner could still know how to drive the car per se. (laughs) I think that's really cool. It is
2: impressive. Yeah. It is impressive.
0: That's cool. So how did the participants feel? I, I know for me it was like a really empowering, cool thing to feel like, you know, that you're playing a part in really important Research and it's it's kind of a cool thing to feel like you can can participate in. Were they nervous, excited? What did they say?
2: Well, I think in the before going into the scanner, many of our participants voiced concerns that, oh my god, what if I can't have an orgasm? I did. So it's kind of like, <laughs> yep. right. About anxiety. Yep. So what I tried to do as best as possible is to reassure people, like you know, just go in there. Have the experience, whatever it is, it's okay, you know. So, as we all know, I know as a sex therapist and a human being, that the minute you try and and uh, you feel like you you're pressured, like you have to have an orgasm, it becomes increasingly difficult when you're goal oriented. So, I really try to encourage people to relax into the sensation, and I honestly think that the people who are most um, Efficient or effective at experiencing orgasms are people who are not necessarily striving towards them, but they're just letting themselves have the sensations.
0: Which Masters
2: and Johnson talked about a long time ago sensation focus.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I remember I thought I was going to be so disappointing because. I didn't realize just how still that I would have to be in all those different things. And I remember when I said, oh, I might ruin this study. Like, I don't know if I could do this. I didn't practice with my head down, blah, blah, blah. And I remember you saying, you know, that it would be helpful no matter what happened. And that just took all the pressure off. And I think that's a great kind of analogy for, you know, quote, real life sex.
2: Exactly. When we're in the sensation, when we're enjoying what's happening without kind of striving towards, you know, reaching for the orgasm or even reaching for the really big orgasm or the multiple orgasms, that, the, the reaching for stuff gets in the way. So what I like to say is, that when, you know, when getting back to the brain, August, in terms of what's going on there, I think that the, the women who you could still have stuff on your mind, you know, uh, you don't have to have a a completely quiet mind to be sexual. And I think that some women, some people are more tuned into or know how to turn on the sensation channel, like their own tuning into their sensations. And I think the way that I describe it from my own personal experience of orgasm is that there comes a point where the sensation takes you where like it like it kind of just, you know, you're kind of feeling it and feeling and then all of a sudden the sensation takes you. And that's just such a great feeling.
0: Yeah, that's it's almost like a surrender, but you have no control over it. It's yeah, I I agree. And I love that now you have this evidence of that. we Because I think that if we had the pressure of I need to quiet my brain down, <laughs> that to me would be challenging, I think.
2: You know, what's even funny is sometimes I've noticed, you know, one of the things that's interesting about studying sex, when you're doing something like a PhD and you're so in it and you're thinking about it all the time, I would have sex and be thinking about what's going on in my brain. (laughs) And it was very funny sometimes because there's a part of me that's like in the moment, and then there's a part of me going, mm, I wonder what's going on with this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> and what I would find, and I think this comes from my my having to train myself, because I come from a long family line of very anxious people, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, you name it, we've got it. So I've kind of learned how to just witness myself without being against it. And I would go, okay, just let that those thoughts be and at the same time, I can still be in the sensation mm. and when you loosen and soften around that, like, okay, you know there may be some soundtracks going on, or you know women tell me, "Oh, they're thinking about oh shit, there's laundry to do," or you know this, that, and the other thing that can go on the that can go in the back burner, and the sensations can come up front, mm. and that's where the fun is.
0: Yeah, I am totally with you there. That's a really powerful message. I love it. What do you, is that kind of the biggest takeaway that you hope, you know, people who are every day, you know, in their lives and their relationships hear about these studies, is that what you'd hope they'd gain?
2: I think that's a great thing to gain is to just encourage people to be in their sensations and, and know that the mind can be busy or doing all sorts of things. And I think prioritizing pleasure, which is really, you know, the reason why I do this work is that it's important that we understand the basic wiring of the sexual brain and also make sexuality and pleasure important because it really, really is. And that's what I'm writing about in, in the book that I'm working on, which is which is really all about how our relationship with our sexuality is a great window into our relationship with pleasure Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: the working emotional brain. So, you know, when we're not having pleasure, it's not, pleasure's not selfish. Pleasure's not optional. Pleasure is a big part of when we're in emotional balance, not just sexual pleasure, but pleasure, period.
0: And why do you think that there are um, challenges around this? What are some of the biggest barriers between a person and kind of embracing and prioritizing pleasure?
2: I think that we've become in a lot of ways a very um, lacking pleasure culture. I think most people most of the time are so in striving, trying to you know, work and make money and, and do the right thing and and kind of be in production, that we have also become very disconnected, not only from ourselves, but each other. And I don't want to blame technology because I'm a big fan of technology. I mean, I love what technology can do and what we can do with our technology. But people are not spending the time in the sort of face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh socializing and play that we used to. And we have too many distractions. So, you know, honestly, some of research is showing that Americans are having less sex than, than any time since the 1980s when they started tracking this.
0: Wow. That says a lot. And we're
2: more depressed and more anxious. Hmm. We're out of balance,
0: August. Yeah. I could see that. I feel like it disrupts our sleep. You, You see, I went on a, cruise a couple of years ago and there were no signals for anything. And it was very strange to see people looking up all the time, you know, (laughs) just being like present and looking around. And yeah, I, you know, I've tried to take little steps. Like I turn off my notifications on my phone, just something small like that Mm -hmm. opens up all this energy.
2: Yeah. We have a lot of um, competing things to get our attention and also for recreation but not all recreation is completed is 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 equal because when you think about it what sex does for us physically emotionally in terms of well-being and I'm not saying you should have sex I'm saying we need to play and obviously there's lots and lots of ways that we can play in the erotic realm that many of us are not making time or priority for. And I think we're suffering. I think it's just, I think it's kind of um, a symptom of our culture and us being out of balance.
0: And what do you think are some practical steps or what do you present to, you know, people you're working with in your practice, for example, who are experiencing the downsides of that? What can we do to start changing that in our own lives?
2: I think a big piece is paying attention to that we have a body. Mm. You know, it's almost like I've always said that when people are in my office, it's like heads on sticks. We're so in our heads. So that being said is, you know, if we slow things down just a little bit and we recognize that if we listen to our bodies, our bodies and our emotions are very, very smart. Nature wired us to have these core emotions, including lust, because it's evolutionarily helpful. Like we need to be able to interact in the world. We need to take care of each other. We need to be angry when we need to be angry. We need to have fear when we need to have fear. When, we ha- when we're when we able to connect with the basic emotions and and kind of like get back to our bodies, our bodies don't lie. So if you're... Noticing, in a sense, that you're not physically feeling well, or you're depressed, or or kind of in a, in a in a bad place, you need to recognize that finding some way over the course of the day to not only be in your body, but also to prior prioritize pleasures in the sense of what's gonna not what you think you should do, or you know going to exercise. It can be a should. But what feels good? What does it? What feels good that you can do? What's going to make you feel more balanced in your life? And that might be more face-to-face contact with friends, tuning out of the media here and there. You know, like turning the phone off for dinner, or you know, and not even making it a big deal. I'm not blaming media. I'm just, you know, or or uh, our devices or anything like that. But just to think about, you know, keep it simple and connect with yourself. Be attuned to yourself. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's on your mind? What's in your body? Which is one of the big reasons people end up coming to therapies, because they're not feeling good in that.
0: I imagine so. Yeah, I actually felt my body relaxing as you were just talking about these things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just being in the
2: moment, take a long, deep, slow exhalation. And you know, it's very interesting. One of the things I'm researching right now is a guy who's writing a lot about how healthy it is for us to be able to connect with the quieting parts of the, the, our nervous system through our social engagement, real social engagement, Hmm. face to face, person to person, where you really feel supported, where you really feel connected, so critical.
0: Yeah, and I can see that we we lose that when we're on our devices because you feel like you're communi- you are communicating with people, but it's a very different thing to be in a space with them.
2: Exactly. You're not able to be resonating on a very visceral, emotional, physical level when you're not in the room. I mean, I, I can't say that, you know, I, I do FaceTime with my grandson, my one-year-old grandson who lives in Tucson. It's better than nothing. But you know what? There's nothing like being in the room. Yeah. And if we're sitting there, and I've seen this so many times, people out to dinner, and everybody's on their devices looking down. I just kind of go, and and the kids too. It's like, hello, we're... You know, look at each other and connect, and it feels so good, and it's so good for us.
0: Yeah, such a powerful message. That's a really, really good one to take, to take in and to think about in our daily lives. How has all of this work influenced your life the most?
2: Great question. I think one of the things that I'm more aware of is I'm a bit out of balance. And how I've gotten out of balance is I've been so busy producing, you know, going back to school and then doing um, writing up my papers and now working on the book and seeing clients and teaching, then I'm starving for my body. So I've gone back to yoga. I always was a big yoga person. I used a lot of yoga and, and stuff to calm my own very reactive nervous system. I used to be a long distance runner and I don't quite have my knees anymore that would work for that. But I'm finding that that Even going out for a walk for 15, 20 minutes outside, you know, it makes me, I make me aware of more and more how I get out of balance. And I think I'm more aware of how important it is to be really, truly, authentically connected with the people in the moment. Like, I'm really appreciating you big time right now for you're doing this work Mm -hmm. and you're talking to women about girl boner, you know, like just savoring being connected, even if it's not, we're not face to face right now, but just slowing things down enough to feel my feelings of appreciation and my, my enjoyment. Like I'm going to go off and teach a human sexuality class this evening and I'm going to have fun. Cause I kind of remind myself all the time, fun and pleasure. Not only is important, it's, absolutely critical to us being effective in the world
0: Mm, yes yes we don't grow out of it and all of that is so mutual i feel the same way and i'm so grateful for the work you're doing your your team i can't wait to get my hands on your book it sounds amazing tell people where they can learn more about you or follow along
2: well, if you, if you go to my website, um, ask Doctor Nan with the doctor spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R, AskDrNan.com. I have some videos that I've done where I've talked about, you know, all sorts of sexual stuff. I have some um, uh, presentations that I've done. And if people have any questions for me, they can write me through the website. I'm always, always happy To be in conversation with people, and um, my book will not be out until next year. I'm looking forward to your book.
0: Thank you.
2: It's you know all of this is so so important. I just want to take tell you a very quick little anecdote. Most everything that was written about my paper was terrific, with the exception of somebody blogged, somebody who I will not name blogged this piece about women as lab rats, and it was such a unfortunate piece because even though I tried to engage the person in a conversation, you know, uh, you know, with him through email, he was just so against he, he, what we did and said it was stupid. And there's so much sex negativity in our culture and also misogyny where, you know, going back to Kinsey, you guys, Kinsey, he was the bomb. He was the first one who really did any, any real big sex research. And what he said, he was fine as long as he talked about male sexuality. When he published the female sexuality book, there was such a backlash. Mm -hmm. And I think to this day, there is that judgment and negative feeling on, for some people, about female sexuality. And it really is important. Like, you know, when you came to the lab and you felt good about doing what you did, my women who came in felt that they were doing something that was like, like sexually positive that they were donating an orgasm to science because they could and they thought that was a wonderful thing.
0: Yes. Amen. I actually I have a lot of compassion for people who feel that scared and threatened by women's sexuality or sexuality to, you know, to say those kinds of things that are more negative. It it it's kind of in a way proof that this is so needed like the work that you're doing is so needed and the messages are so important I think
2: the work we all are doing and women in particular there's so much um, not even implicit uh, sexism you know it's getting explicit sexism and racism and everything so all the more reason and there was a great piece in the times today about this too for us to for women to speak up
0: yes yeah charge yep Absolutely. and you're doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, and you inspire me to keep doing it. I feel like there's definitely some sort of hopefully healing crisis going on. More people are speaking up. I feel like there's more room for our voices, and there's still so much work to be done, for sure. But your focus on pleasure and fun and positivity and, and finding those like-minded people and the good resources, I think, are huge. You know, it's there's that Gloria Steinem quote that I'm going to not get quite right but it'll piss the truth will set you free but first it will piss you off <laughs> that's that's like guided me through a lot of girl boner work because I used yes. to get into these like rages almost before I had a platform to be able to talk about these things in positive ways you get so frustrated by the negativity
2: I loved what you said about feeling sorry for people who are so scared and threatened by female sexuality because that's exactly what it is women are very very powerful our sexuality is very powerful. Our giving birth to babies is powerful. We're powerful. And, and power doesn't take anything away from anybody else. It empowers other people. So people people who get threatened by that don't understand it.
0: It's true. Yeah, it, it helps everyone. Equality helps everyone. More opportunity exactly. doesn't take it away from anybody else. And, yeah, I think that's such an important message. Gosh, well, I could talk to you for days. I hope you'll join me again.
2: I would love to, anytime you invite me.
0: Beautiful. Thank you again, Nan, for everything you're doing and for sharing this time today.
2: Right back at you, August.
0: Isn't she fantastic? I'm so grateful for Nan's work and Dr. Barry Kamizarek's work, their whole team, All and Beverly Whipple, she mentioned. There are so many wonderful people out there doing incredible work, and I hope you will check her out at AskDrNan.com. You can find my interview with Dr. Barry Kamisrek from a couple years ago on Girl Boner, but I also am featuring him in my brain chapter of the Girl Boner book coming out next year, so definitely stay tuned for that. So we have a fabulous question related to the brain, orgasms, and pain from Andrea for today's Ask Dr. Megan segment. Andrea asked this, for some reason, this feels like a confession. I suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome and almost nothing works to manage the pain as much as masturbating does. I realized it on a fluke a few months back. I'm to the point of doing it every day, sometimes more than once, usually with a vibrator because it's the fastest and strongest. I guess I just want to know if there are any risks to this. Thank you so much, Andrea, for this question. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say.
1: Andrea, thank you so much uh, for your question. And, uh, you know, I think I used to work actually in uh, pain medicine and palliative care at Beth Israel Medical Center. And um, I think when it comes to sort of any any unremitting chronic pain syndrome, or in your case, also fatigue syndrome, um, finding sort of homeopathic or non uh, pharmacological options to uh, feel relief and Uh, And and in this case, pleasure is, you know, again, my expression is always tools and toolbox. So wonderful tools in your toolbox. And it's fantastic that you sort of serendipitously figured this out a few months ago. And so... You know, it's interesting. I think still prevalent in our society, uh, not so much this idea of you know if you masturbate too much you're going to go blind, but certainly a lot of concerns still about vibrators um, and that they could potentially cause lasting harm and or nerve damage. But I can tell you there are no scientific studies uh, that that prove that. But what what I think is true and is important to think about and consider for yourself is that um, you know some women do need additional more like their tipping point for orgasm is with more stimulation and that uh the reality is with a vibrator it, it if, if that's the only way you're masturbating there's certainly evidence from a sort of a learning theory and conditioned response that it's going to be more challenging and or difficult to have orgasms with other forms of stimulation i often say um you know we sort of say that if men if man has um a real strong grip we sort of colloquially, sort of say, the death grip, that, again, her, her, your partner isn't going to be able to duplicate that uh, with her hand, or mouth, certainly her vagina. And so uh, I think that, listen, I am a big believer in an orgasm a day. I think there's so much that is amazing and wonderful about orgasms. It's the pleasure of the dopamine. It's the, uh, you know, oxytocin, sort of the the cuddle hormone. Um, so the, the ax the absolute experience of having an orgasm day and or more than once a day, I think is fantastic. Um, and especially because it gives you, it sounds like significant relief. And in fact, if anything, I just would have you consider that you just aren't depending on the vibrator because the thing is a vibrator it's efficient right and you know it can take women you know often thirty seconds, less than certainly a minute or two to reach orgasm with a vibrator but what we do know from that is it might be cutting off your arousal response and that the longer you, again the biggest sex organ is our brain the longer time you are turning yourself on and building arousal typically the more intense and stronger the orgasms will be and certainly as women right, we have the capacity to have more than one orgasm we don't have that refractory period that men do uh from time of ejaculation orgasm to next erection and so uh i guess there's a part of it that says that uh completely give yourself permission to allow to enjoy but make sure that you're uh well not make sure there's no should or shoulds here but that just to consider the fact that you know are you sort of ending with just one uh do you still mean to it stimulate yourself longer to have more than one uh, and the role of potentially using a combination of vibrator versus just your hands trying lube no lube um, including breath caressing and again engaging your mind as sort of you know using fantasy or uh, visual stimulation because again anything that really absorbs you and I think it, think about that quality of absorbed and in the moment but in a sensation of pleasure there's something that's very um, distracting, certainly from the aspects of pain, but also uh, engaging and pleasurable. And so that is, I think, a piece where it can be so helpful is it's not only a distraction, but it is focusing your mind and attention on something which gives you pleasure. Um, so I'm just encouraging you that uh, take all the time you want and need and know that even though you might feel uh, pleasure and relief from one orgasm, you know, if you haven't explored, what if you stayed a little bit longer in that experience. And also just the idea of always keeping variety up in your sexual play, because I think anytime we get conditioned um, to only particular kinds of stimulation, it, it can make it that much harder to, in a sense, have your partner be able to give you pleasure or potentially an orgasm without also using a vibrator or another sexual toy advice. So advice. Um, Anyway, I'm so glad that you found this um, out and that you're allowing and taking time and enjoying your orgasms. And as always, um, carry on and can't wait to hear how it goes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved what she had to say. You can learn more about Dr. Megan Fleming, who is our resident sex and relationship expert here at Girl Boner at her website, greatlifegreatsex.com. I loved what she shared about, you know, keeping variety going. And I am right there with her. Andrea, I think it's amazing that you found a natural, beautiful, totally embraceable way to manage your pain. I think solo play is so medicinal, and there's not a single reason that you need to feel ashamed of that. I hope you feel confident and and strong and just keep having fun. You know, like Nan said, focus on pleasure and fun and You know, I think it could be easy to think of it as pain relief only. So, what Megan said really struck me. You know, try to see if, what if I want a little bit more? Or what if I tried orgasm control with it? You can hear my episode with Mona Darling, the kink educator, who is a dominatrix for a long time, on that, where you get close to orgasm and you stop yourself. And then you get close and then you stop yourself. And it's kind of excruciating sometimes, but it's also really powerful. And I just think it's wonderful to learn more about your body. So, try different things, and use those natural, healthy, amazing tools you have. I hope all of you will do that out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a simple review while you're there. I will see you next time. Have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.